All right, good morning. It's great to be back with you. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, would you please open them to the book of Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. And this morning, we will be picking it up in verse 21. Verse 21. Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Father, we come before you this morning in one of the most sobering warnings that we find in the Sermon of the Mount. As you have taken us through this incredible sermon, you leave us with four warnings. You tell us to consider, number one, which path that we are on, the wide or the narrow. You instruct us to beware of false prophets and to know them by their fruit. But today, Lord, you paint for us a scenario that would be terrifying for anyone to find themselves in. And you make it abundantly clear that there will be those on that day that will stand before you believing that they are going to enter into eternity only to discover that they were never saved. They did not know you. And more importantly, you did not know them. Father, I pray that you would check our hearts today, that we may know that we are in the faith. Father, we ask for your Spirit to lead us and guide us this morning. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, growing up, I had a father that was often desiring to be spontaneous. Uh, That changed. But one year, we decided to be spontaneous and load up the family trucks there and head down to Florida. My dad was a teacher and a principal, as many of you know, in the city of Chicago for 35 years. And so we were on spring break. And my dad had an impromptu impromptu decision to load up the car and head down to Florida. We were all excited about that. But lo and behold, we didn't realize that my dad didn't plan to uh, or to make a reservation before we got there and discovered that it was spring break down there also. And I remember my dad looking at me and saying, I'm never going anywhere unless I know for sure where I'm going and what waits for me when I get there. What wise words those are today. Out of all the warnings that Jesus gives us, the third is the one that should give us all a moment of pause. A moment of consideration. Because Jesus clearly paints for us the scenario that there will be those who will stand before him who have full anticipation of entering into the kingdom of God 
entering into eternity in heaven, only to discover that they never truly were saved. They determined their salvation by uh, elements of their life, but they never knew the Lord. And more importantly, as we discover, Jesus never knew them. Today we live in an era where many people have a false sense of assurance concerning their salvation in Jesus Christ. When we hear of the number of professed Christians here in the United States of America and yet see the number of problems that we are still contending with, you have an understanding that they may profess Christianity but not carry with them a biblical worldview. Begging the question, do they really know or understand if they are truly saved? You know, as one uh, scholar once said, you know, sitting in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. And there are those individuals who go to church each and every Sunday. They may hear the gospel in its clarity. They may do good things, sing in the worship team give a few dollars in financial giving, serve in some other capacity, cut the grass of the church, thinking and believing that those things indicate and constitute a relationship with Jesus Christ. But yet Jesus here gives us one of the most sober warnings and one of the most horrific scenarios that I can ever imagine a person being in. Thinking, going your entire life, thinking that you're saved. And then to stand before him in that moment to hear these words, I never knew you, depart from me. That's something that I can't even fathom in my mind. And yet it is a reality that Jesus prepares us for. That there will be those who will stand before him and hear those words. The first question that we ask is that, did Jesus have anyone specifically in mind when he said these things? Well, it is clear from the rest of the Sermon of the Mount that he was painting a contrast between those who would follow him and those of the self-righteous religious leaders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees of that day. And undoubtedly, we know that the Pharisees believed that they were God's representative here on this earth, which they were. But they also believed that that afforded them a place of privilege and prominence within the kingdom of heaven. Believing that when Messiah were to come and establish His kingdom here on this earth, that not only would they Uh, be part of it, but also play an intricate role in the leadership of it. Of course, this is an argument that the disciples had with Jesus that caused them to ask the question, which one of us shall sit at your right hand? Even some of them had an intermediary uh, come in on their behalf, their mom, and ask Jesus that same question. In fact, right before the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are still asking, are you now going to set forward the kingdom of God? And of course, he tells them that the time is not yet. 
But yet Jesus was not only speaking to the religious leaders, but to his disciples. He was also speaking to the crowd that amassed behind the disciples. And each and every person who heard these words should have stopped and considered what Jesus was saying. We would be remiss if we do not do that ourselves today. For even Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, and I'm going to be showing you some verses today, so I hope that you will write them down and then further explore them afterwards. But listen to the words of Paul as he wrote to the church in Corinth when he says, Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you are disqualified. Test yourself. We know all about testing in this country, don't we? And people are so diligent due to their concerns concerning the COVID virus. And understandably so. And yet, how many Christians... Take a moment to pause throughout their life to consider this question. To examine themselves to see if they are in the faith. Truly in the faith. But it wasn't only Paul that carried this sentiment into the early church. Peter, in his last letter, also said to us, he says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so uh, an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Interesting language, isn't it? That an entrance, an abundant entrance will be provided for you by examining yourself and being diligent to do so. I remember reading these words as an early believer in Jesus Christ. And they caused me a moment of pause. A young man who prided himself on skating through any, you know, academic career in which I had. To me, a D was dandy, okay? But when I read this, I said to myself, it is possible to go through my entire life And wear the clothes of the Christian. Look and talk like a Christian. And yet never having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And let me make it abundantly clear here. Jesus clearly says to the individual standing before them, I never knew you. It's not that I knew you at one time and then, well, I forgot about you. Or I unfriended you from the kingdom of God. I never knew you, he says. And there are many people going through all of the religious motions here in this country that may find themselves in a position such as this. First of all, as Christians, we must understand something from what Jesus says here. (coughs) Excuse me. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. 
but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. There is a standard. There is a qualification needed for entering into the kingdom of God. Make, let's make that abundantly clear from the beginning. There is a standard. There is a quality. There is a necessity for entering into the kingdom of God. Jesus clarifies that standard earlier on in his sermon in Matthew 5.20. When he says to those who are listening to him, and this would be especially interesting to the Pharisees and scribes who were there in his hearing. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter in to the kingdom of heaven. By no means. It was a standard that each and every person hearing that statement would have said that's an impossibility to ever meet. For they believed that the righteous display of the religious scribes and Pharisees was the standard for all people to meet and to exceed, to enter into the kingdom of God. But Jesus made it clear that the outward self-righteousness displayed by the religious Pharisees was no indication of where their heart was actually at. He called them white-walled tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones and all corruption. You know what that says to me? We can look good. We can play the role. We can go through the motions. And yet, our hearts can be far from God. Now, one of the things we must do whenever we talk about a theological idea of the Bible, especially from a passage like this in Matthew, is to watch how Matthew develops that idea throughout the entire gospel. If you, for example, find uh, a statement such as this, you have a 95% chance of finding qualifying information within the gospel itself that would clarify what Matthew is referring to here. Does that make sense? I learned this the hard way by thinking that you could read the first chapter of a book and do the book report, right? Or even trying to fast forward to the end. Oh, the teacher will be impressed. I'll tell them how they start and I'll tell them how they finish, but not knowing the entirety of the story. But here, Jesus and Matthew make it abundantly clear. For Matthew uses this term, the kingdom of heaven, throughout the gospel. This was a primary thought in his presentation of the life of Jesus Christ. So if we take just a quick look, and I'd like to do that with you today, we discover that he talks about this will. He gives us traits and elements and characteristics of this will. And the first of those characteristics is actually found in Matthew 18, verses 3 through 5. Notice what Matthew writes here. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Converted. A change. Something must happen in the life of the individual to enter into the kingdom of God. 
converted. A change of direction, a change of mind, a change of attitude, a change of heart. Converted. This is important to to memorize or to know when we get into the latter portion of our message today where we talk about some of the incredible misleading conclusions that individuals have adopted to believe and to comfort themselves into thinking they're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he goes on to say, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one of these little child is like um, like this in my name receives me. Humility. Humility begins the process. As the great C.H. Spurgeon once said, he says pride has kept more people out of the kingdom of heaven than anything else. And there are many scholars who today believe that pride is the root, the foundation of all sin against God. I think there's an interesting argument to be made for that. But this pride, Jesus says, must be overcome. Now, of course, for the religious leaders, that pride would be discovered in recognizing and admitting that a 33-year-old carpenter from the city of Nazareth was the actual Messiah that they had been waiting for. Even though all of the signs and all of the miracles and the power and the authority of His words were not significant or sufficient, excuse me, enough to help them come to that conclusion. Their pride kept them from that. Humility is needed to receive by faith the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can see how Matthew is developing this, especially in the context of the fact that he is writing to his Jewish brethren. Knowing the intellectual hurdles that they would have to overcome to receive Jesus as their Messiah. So first he warns them of this. But notice he also says that materialism will keep one from in Matthew 19, 23 and 24. Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When an idea is developed throughout the Bible, please understand that the theological points that Jesus makes throughout the gospel are explained in the epistles that Paul writes. Because he was introducing Jesus Christ to the Gentile world who did not grow up in the history of Judaism. Does that make sense? It would like you and I going to a foreign culture, trying to understand that culture and why the culture does what they do without knowing the history of that culture. It would be very difficult, wouldn't it? We have made a lot of diplomatic uh, mistakes by not fully understanding the history or the makeup of a cultural development. So Jesus, he, I'm sorry, Matthew capitalizes on the fact that Jesus made it clear that material possessions, love of this world, love of the things of this world would keep one from the kingdom of God. Of course, that's developed in 1 John even further. <coughs> Excuse me, I got a tickle in my throat. 
Would someone mind grabbing me a water, please? Thank you. Per- preferably a fresca, if they have it, lemon-lime. I'm just kidding. Uh, she better be running out. Get- no, okay. Um, anyways, so Matthew is developing that idea, and of course that idea was developed in the epistles going forward. And John said that the love of this world is in complete enmity. Thank you, Carrie. Oh, that's the wrong one. No. That the love of this world would hinder a person's from receiving and growing in Christ. So as Jesus continues, again, we stated that there is a standard. Something has to occur. They must be converted. They must be humble. They must realize the limitations of the fulfillment and the satisfaction of the things of this world. And being willing to depart from those things for the, for the purposes of Christ. But let's go back to our text. Let us once again understand that I believe that from Matthew 5.20, it is clear that Jesus has the religious leaders in mind. For he said later in Matthew's gospel, again Matthew furthering and expounding upon his thoughts, said, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering going in. Meaning, they're not entering, and neither is anyone who is following them entering into the kingdom of God. Now, let's bring this into a today parallel. This would, this would be like one who is a devout Catholic believing that the Pope will not be allowed into the kingdom of heaven. That would be unheard of for them. Or someone who is a good person like Mother Teresa not entering into the kingdom of heaven. Those are examples, leaders within those denominations for people to follow. But Jesus clearly indicates to us here in the passage what is called the woes of the Pharisees. That the religious leaders of that day were not going to enter into the kingdom of God because they were hypocrites. He did not know them. They were not of his sheep. And this would have, of course, struck a chord in all of those who were listening to these words. And it should cause all of us a moment of pause to consider if we are truly in the faith. But as he continues on and develops this idea about the will of God, notice that the will of God is further explained again in the Gospel of Matthew. For Matthew writes in Matthew 18, 12-24, he says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does not he leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, as surely I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish." It is not the heart of God to see people perish in their sins. 
It is not the heart of God to see people destined to an eternity to hell. So when someone objects to Christianity and states to you, I can't embrace a God that would send anyone to hell. Your response to that objection should be this. What more would you require of God to do to save individuals from that eternal position than he himself coming out of heaven as a man and dying on the behalf of all the sins of the world? What more would God have to do to save you? What would you have him to do to prove his love to you any further? It is not God who sends people to hell. I reject the idea of double predestination. I believe that God gives us the free will to choose. And yet we have been predestined from the foundations of the world. How is that possible? When we find God, we will ask Him. But see, God doesn't ask me to know how He saves people. I just know that He does. But He does ask me to invite everyone through the gospel of Jesus Christ to find salvation in Him. I am perfectly satisfied with that mystery. I do believe that God elects from the foundation of the world and predestines those who are His. I also believe that man has free will to choose what God has offered or to reject it. How those two work hand in hand? Well, that's up to God. And so let's allow God to be God and man to be man, and let's simply be obedient to what God has asked us to be obedient to. But that being said, it is clear that he does not desire any to perish. And this is absolutely consistent with the rest of the scriptures, isn't it? It's consistent when he says, I do not rejoice over the death of the wicked in the Old Testament. Many who would look to the Old Testament and see another God altogether, a cruel, harsh, you know, impersonal God that just wants to uh, throw his wrath upon everybody. But Peter outlines the long-suffering of God again in his later writings, First and Second Peter, and he states that it's the long-suffering of God that we should see as God desiring no one to perish but all to come to repentance. So it's God's idea for us not to perish. I've set my son that you may believe on him and escape that eternity. But the will of God is also demonstrated by those who do it. Matthew furthers that idea in Matthew 21, 28-32. I know I'm throwing a lot at you today, but you can handle it. But what do you think? Now a man has two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. And Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots uh, enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in a way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But... Tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not 
afterwards relent and believe in him. Notice what he's saying there. You had the choice. You saw what John was doing and the message that he was proclaiming, and you chose to reject it. Very interesting statement later in the Gospels. When Jesus is rejected, he goes up on the hill and prays over Jerusalem, and he says, I came to you, but you were unwilling to come to me. Unwilling. It's not that they couldn't, but they wouldn't come to him. They had that choice to make. It is imperative. It is imperative that we see that the religious leaders, again, as hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourself nor do you allow others to go in. Now let me take you back to Matthew chapter 7 for a moment. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. For in verse 22, many will say to me in that day, notice that phrase, there is a day that is clearly delineated in Scripture that all will stand before Jesus Christ. As Paul emphasized this point, he said that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. But at that point, it is too late. They have come to the place where they've discovered that Jesus is truly the Lord in whom he said he was, but they had rejected him. And yet they still pay him homage before entering into an eternity apart from him. That day of judgment is a day that we like to gloss over as Christians here in America specifically. We do not like to consider that God is going to hold the world accountable for their sin. We don't like to consider that even as believers in Jesus Christ, Paul clearly tells us that there is a day that we will stand before what is called the Bema Seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Giving account how we use the new life in which Jesus Christ has given us. Where the thoughts of our hearts, the motive of our hearts will all be illuminated by this judgment. And those things that are as precious gold, silver, and precious jewels shall remain. But those things that were done for carnal, selfish purposes, out of motives of uh, self-fulfillment, will be like hay and stubble, burn away. The Bible says we'll still be saved, but we'll be rewarded for those things that we have done accordingly. Those things are then fashioned into a wreath in which we are given, the New Testament says. It's a crown. It's our reward. Now, before you think, okay, wow, I'm going to have a nice uh, die, you know, crown for all eternity, you know. My crown is bigger than your crown, you know. Revelation chapter 5 tells us that the last moment of our collective worship before Jesus Christ in heaven will be to take those crowns and to throw them at his feet, knowing that the only reason that we have received those things is due to the fact of the new life in which he has given us through his sacrifice and the ability of the power of the Holy Spirit. We can take no credit for the good things that God has done in and through us. But we will stand before him at that Bema seat. 
in that day. And of course, Matthew goes on to talk about that day. A separation of the goat and the sheep and so forth. That day that individuals will stand before God. This is not a topic discussed in many churches any longer. Again, it is much easier for us to operate in uh, compromise with the world by excluding the reality of that day. By saying that that day won't come or doesn't exist. Oh, it's coming. Probably sooner than we think. But yet again, that day is what we have been saved from and for. There is a true misunderstanding today of what salvation actually saves us from. Many would say that salvation saves us from sin. That's true, but partially true. The salvation being saved means that we are being saved from the coming wrath of God. This is a biblical truth. We are being saved from the pouring out of the wrath of God upon this world and upon us for all eternity. The Bible clearly tells us in Revelation chapter 20 that everyone who does not know the Lord will have to stand before Him at the great white throne judgment where books will be open. And within those books, we believe, is every thought, every word, every action of the individual. Every sin they've ever committed and they themselves will have to try to atone and to uh, overcome that sin in some fashion, in some way, which is an impossibility before our God. He will then go to the book of life, the Bible says, and not find their name there, and they will depart from him and spend eternity separated from him in a place that God created for the devil and his angels. It wasn't even really created for us initially. And we will spend an eternity in hell due to the fact that we then have to account for our sins and weather the wrath of God. Do you not understand that that moment that they were watching Jesus Christ on the cross, that those hours of darkness displayed the wrath of God being poured upon His Son on our behalf? And each and every one of us who have put in our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, He now has bared the burden of that wrath. God poured out His wrath in the darkness, in the separation and in the death upon His Son. His Son was perfect. Physically, He would not have died if it wouldn't have been for the crucifixion. And it wasn't obligation that held Christ to the cross. It was love for you and I. But let us understand that in those hours of darkness, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ so you and I would be saved from that wrath for all eternity. That was a great place for an amen. You guys, really you switched to decaf this morning? Bad timing, okay? But let us understand that we are being saved from the wrath of God. But not only are we being saved from, uh, from the wrath of God, but we're being saved for the purposes of God. To glorify Him, to live our lives for Him in the new life in which He has given us. 
to live separate from the world. Though we are in the world, we are not of the world, and we are to be lights unto the darkness. And our lights are going to be diminished if we continue to compromise with the world's values. Christianity is going to become irrelevant if we continue to conform ourselves to the world. Do we understand that? Jesus Christ never did that. That's why he stood out. Yes, people were drawn to him because of the light in which he shined. But let us also understand he was hated because of that. Because his light also exposed the darkness in the hearts of those around him. That day will come. And again, in an emphatic way, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? These are all things that the religious leaders would have done. Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. I can just hear the religious leaders standing before Jesus, before God, before eternity, saying such things, can't you? But this is no different than one of us saying to the Lord at that moment, but I went to church. But I was a good person. I was born an American. I must be a Christian. Some believe that. I gave money. I gave of my time. I cut their stinking grass. Did I really just say stinking? Excuse my language. Grass. And Jesus is going to look at them. And what's he going to say to them? Look at it with me together. I what? Never knew you. I never knew you. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with God through Christ. And we as believers must understand that. Now, unfortunately, in our culture, we seem to uh, understand less and less each and every day what a relationship means and how relationships are cultivated, don't we? A relationship is not established through social media. Do we now learn that? Okay? I have talked to numerous people who have numerous friends on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all the rest of the band, you know, Snapchat. Just the names alone, you're like, really? They can have all kinds of followers. They can have all kinds of friends. But loneliness and friendlessness is at an all-time high in our nation today because we don't know how to cultivate relationships anymore we don't know how to work through our problems resolve our conflicts the moment problems occur we just unfriend them and think it's been dealt with right well when i was growing up and here i go i'm stating my age again when i was growing up my friend group on my block if we had a problem we would duke it out and then we would forgive each other And then we would go and watch Three Stooges and have dinner at each other's house. Now, I'm not advocating that you duke it out. But the point of the matter is is that we were forced to deal with these things if we wanted to maintain and remain in that friend group. And I think a lot of you can relate to what I'm saying. But the word know here, the word knew that Jesus is using here is a word of complete intimacy. It's the same word that is found in the Hebrew, that Abraham knew his wife in an intimate way. In fact, the same Greek word is used in what's called the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. 
Jesus is looking for an intimate relationship with you. A personal, intimate relationship with you. And that relationship must be cultivated. Now notice that in that relationship, he clearly states that he never knew them. In John 10, Jesus said concerning the religious leaders, Jesus answered them, and told, I told you, and you do not believe, again addressing the religious leaders. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I what? I know them. And then he goes on. I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. For I and my Father are one. This is the text that I use to answer the question when Christians ask, do I believe that a Christian can lose their salvation? Let me clarify when I state, no, I do not believe a quote-unquote genuine Christian can lose their salvation. But the Bible clearly tells us that there are those who may resemble a Christian. But John says in 1 John uh, 2.19, or 119, 219, 119. It's a 19 and it's in 1 John. <laughs> that there are those who departed because they never truly were of us, John says. And this would be consistent with the thinking of Jesus, that I never knew you. And he clearly says that you are not of my sheep and this is why you do not know, hear my voice and this is why I do not know you. Because you do not follow me. And in verse 23 of Matthew 7, and then I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, after saying all that we have said, and we covered a lot for a short period of time, I want to make it abundantly clear this morning how you can know for sure if you are a Christian. In fact, do you realize that a whole book of the Bible has been written just for that purpose for you? A whole book of the Bible has been written for that purpose. But before we look at that, I'm going to hold you in suspense for a little while longer. Let me share with you some of the ways a person is not saved. Number one. We are not saved by simply being a good person. Number one, we are not saved by simply being a good person. Too many people I have heard state to another person who's inquiring about Christianity, all you need to do is be a good person to get into the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) I wish I had one of those hockey horns right now for the goal because it would be blaring. Because the standard isn't good, okay? Now, everybody thinks good 
is a good standard, right? But if someone came out of a restaurant and said to you, that restaurant was pretty good. The first thing I can imagine you saying to them, but it wasn't great. See, good isn't a very good standard. The standard of Christianity is perfection. A standard that all of us fall short from and are incapable of ever meeting. Only a perfect person can enter into the kingdom of God. And there's only one of two ways that we can be perfect. Number one, to be perfect our entire life in thought, action, and deed. Impossible, right? We all fail. The only other way to be perfect to enter into the kingdom of God is to allow Christ to robe us with his perfection by placing our faith and trust in him. Therefore, God the Father looks through him when he evaluates us. And he becomes what John calls our propitiation for sin, our payment for sin. And through Christ, we look to God the Father as we are perfect. Now, we know personally we're far from it, right? But it's not our righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness because he was the only one that was perfect because he and he alone was God. So to be good is not sufficient to get into to heaven. Many people believe that they are born a Christian from the very beginning. But Jesus made it abundantly clear that you do not enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Born twice. Once physically, once spiritually. So simply being born doesn't mean that you're a Christian. To grow up in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. God doesn't have any grandkids. He only has kids. We do not inherit Christianity through our parents. You know, I inherited a, the hairline that I have. Whoever my dad is, as I was adopted, I'd like to talk to him. Knowing me, he probably had a full hair ahead, and I'm the year that it skipped, you know. His dad didn't, but I don't either. But we do not inherit Christianity through our parents. That's not true. Not through our nationality, not through our culture. We do not inherit Christianity in that way. And so to believe that is absolutely wrong. And why do I say that? Because that's what the Jews believed. The Jews all believed that they were sons of Abraham. But John says, unless you repent. And then he goes on to say that I can raise up any one of these stones to be a son of Abraham. No, we do not inherit Christianity through our parents. The fourth one is what the predominant thinking is today, that God is a God of love. And all get in in the end. Love wins, as one wrote, heretically. If that was the case, then Jesus Christ died for nothing. It would would be nice to believe in universalism, that everyone in the end is saved, and yet the Bible clearly rejects that. It is only those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and display that by following Him. Those are the ones that can embrace salvation. God does love us beyond our wildest imagination and demonstrated that love through the sending of His only begotten Son. For God so loved the world is not He loved you this much. No, He's saying God so loved the world that he dem- what He did is He demonstrated that love by sending His Son to you and for you. That you may believe in Him and you shall not die.
Again, I'm constantly reminded that individuals are baptized as infants. And that that justified their salvation. No, infant baptism hasn't justified anyone. Baptism is always displayed in the Bible after salvation is received. An infant has no capacity, none, to make the decision for Jesus Christ. And yet, so many believe that they are secured by that. If these are the five or six things that are, an individual is holding on for their salvation, let me warn you. And let me be as clear as I possibly can. You stand in danger of hearing those words. I never knew you. But John wrote us a book. The book of 1 John was written for this purpose. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So it's written to us as believers that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know. There are many who believe. I don't know for sure until I die and then I will find out. Wait a minute. Yeah, a bit late. How about it? I wouldn't want to live that way, would you? I wouldn't want to start driving from Chicago to Florida without knowing I have a reservation once I get down there. Been there, done that. But he has written this that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Scholars believe that there are 12 tests that an individual can take found in the book of 1 John. I'm going to give you four today and ask you to find the other eight. And we will be having a test next Sunday. It'll be a a Scantron test, so you'll need a number two pencil uh, to fill in the little circles. Do they even do that anymore? Or did that go out in ditto machines? Remember ditto machines? The ditto machines, they put these things out, and then everybody's shaking your head. Really? I'm really dating myself. I mean, they're so worried about everything, any kind of, you know, uh, scent or effect or allergy in America today. They used to put dittos on our, on our desk, and the first thing we did is just sniff all of the ammonia. You know, we were a very happy class. I don't know why, but there are, there are 12. I'm going to give you four. Number one, it's called the evidence test. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, has cleansed us from all sin. Number one, is there evidence in our life of our genuine conversion to Christianity? Is there evidence in our life that others can see to demonstrate that we are truly a Christian? That's what John's saying here. If we walk in the darkness, if we walk just like everyone else in the world, there is nothing to distinguish us from them. And I hate to use those terms because I'm no better than anybody else. I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find some food. That being said, let us be clear. There must be evidence of your salvation. So those who have prayed a prayer at one time or walked an aisle or responded to an altar call, but there's no evidence in their life, no heart for God, no heart for the things of God. Be careful. 
Be careful because that would contradict what he is saying here to know that we have been, our sins have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Number two, it's the Lordship test. Now by this we know that we know Him. Okay, pretty straightforward, right? If we keep His commandments. Meaning, do we do what He says? And how does He speak to us? Through His Word. Do we seek to obey His Word each and every day? John said that would be evidence of our salvation, of our true conversion into Christianity. By doing what God has said to do. Number three, it's the fellowship test. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. I had a gentleman come to the church years ago who said he hadn't been to church for years because he loves Jesus but hates God's people. That's what you would call a red flag, you know? And so I gave him the address of other churches around the area. No, do we love the people of God? Do we see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ longing for the fellowship with one another? Looking forward to it. I mean, this past week as I was waiting, you know, uh, I I was going crazy not seeing you guys. I was like, man, I want to be in fellowship. I want to be around my brothers and sisters in Christ. Have we now found that isolation is not a healthy thing? Have we discovered that now? And number four, out of the four that I will give you quickly this morning, and I know we've gone longer than normal, and I thank you for your patience, is the relationship test. After this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. And he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. When someone says to you, All roads lead to heaven. They may lead to God, but they certainly do not lead to heaven. It's only through Jesus Christ. It's only through Him. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I know we've gone longer than we normally do, but I felt this so important because you know what? I'm not going to take it for granted that all of you know Jesus Christ. I hope you do. I'm not judging you. I'm simply conveying the warning that God has given us in His Word. So how is one saved? Jesus said it this this clearly. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent Turn from your sin, he's saying. Go in the opposite direction and believe the gospel. That's it. That's the heart of it. It's a free invitation. It's a free gift to anyone who will receive it. But yet, let me say, it will cost you the rest of your life. Because he who seeks to save his life will lose it. And he who seeks to lose his life will save it, Jesus told us. Paul went on to say this to those who are in Rome. But what does it say? That the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. 
that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and for with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture said, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek in this. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's through Jesus. It's all about him. This morning as we celebrate the first Sunday of March on this beautiful day, we end our service with communion. Communion is for the believer in Jesus Christ to remember the sacrifice in which Christ has made on our behalf. But not is it to only remember the sacrifice, but it's to celebrate the resurrection. Knowing that the sacrifice has been made and the, and the uh, atonement has been fulfilled and God has accepted, God the Father has accepted and received that sacrifice on behalf of those who will believe in Him. Now, if you're here today or you're watching online and you do not have the assurance that you would step out of this world in the moment of death and enter into heaven for all eternity, today is the day to know for sure. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. God has brought you here for this appointment. He has reached out to you. He has drawn you here to hear this message. I do not work on commission, meaning I don't get an extra five bucks per person who comes forward. But the Bible says that all of heaven rejoices over the repentance of one sinner. And so if you are here today and you don't know for sure, you can leave here knowing for sure by simply repenting and believing the good news of Jesus Christ. What is that good news? This, that Christ came to die on our behalf for the wages of sin is death. All die because of sin. And Christ came and died on our behalf that we'll put off our faith and trust in Him and believe in Him. The resurrection shows us that God accepted the sacrifice in which Jesus made on our behalf. Knowing for sure, as John has written, that we can know that we have eternal life. And that on that day, we will not have to be scared and worried and afraid. But we'll know for sure. Not because of what we have done, but because of what He has done on our behalf.